don't know if you would call yourself an optimist or a pessimist. We have a few of each in our household. I'll fall on the pessimist side, Kel will fall on the optimist side, it makes for good conversation. Although pessimist is a little uh, unattractive as a name really. Realist is what I like to go for. That's how I like to go for it. Um, and uh, I think I'm right. That's, that's how it works. There's, you're either one or the other, aren't you? You're, a, you're an optimist or, or a realist. Uh, and there's a sense in which, uh, at times, people have said to me, look, Steve, life is hard. Life is hard. And what we don't need is actually we don't need uh, church in any of its forms to make life harder. What we actually need for life as we live in this world is inspiring messages, optimistic, positive, uplifting messages to help us live in the world that is so difficult. And I can understand that, sentiment because life is hard. Life is not easy. Life is difficult from day to day. But the problem with that view, of course, is the Bible itself. Sometimes people say, why is Reformation Christianity so negative? about humanity? And the answer is because the Bible is. We live in an age, don't we, which says, be optimistic about what the human race can achieve. But we need to be realistic. Though we make so many more advances as a human race in all sorts of different ways, we have not been able to eradicate so many of the problems that we sought to achieve that we sought to eradicate. Interestingly though, the Bible is both at the same time realistic about us and optimistic about God. See, when we rightly understand the Bible, we will be in a best position both to see ourselves rightly and to see God rightly, giving us both realism and optimism in each passage of the Scriptures. It's not right for us to go one way or the other because we feel a certain way about the world. The Bible opens up that that avenue for us. See, when we rightly understand ourselves as human beings, as mixed up individuals who are the unlovely enemies of God with no spiritual health in us, that realism, which is hard for us to take, can point us to the joy that comes when we understand that though we are like this, God saved us and loved us and redeemed us. And the story of the bloodline in Genesis 25 to 50 is a similarly frustrating mixture of realism and optimism. It's a picture and a mixture of humanity at its best and its worst. How we're mixed up. And yet all the way through, it's a picture of how God himself optimistically holds on to his promises through the rebellion of his people all the way through against all odds. Today we're going to see a continuation of this theme. We're going to look together at chapter 32 all the way through to chapter 35 of the book of Genesis. So please have a Bible open in front of you. Uh, And I have enthusiastically titled today's sermon WrestleMania because wrestling with God is better than the mania of life. If you want to ask a question, we'll do that a bit later. Answer some at slido.com. The hashtag to answer, ask a question is HB for Helensburg, SP for Stanwell Park. 
I'm going to pray and then we'll dive in together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. We pray, please, that you'd give us now just the ability to see what you are saying to us about ourselves and about you so that we might engage rightly with you and have our lives changed and blessed by you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I said I enthusiastically titled this sermon WrestleMania because I love the WWE. Sorry if you don't. I know that puts me down on the social ladder further down than you, but that's okay. I grew up watching it with my father. Uh, We would uh, videotape it and uh, watch it on a Saturday or a Sunday morning together. And I still love it today. In fact, WrestleMania is next weekend. If you want to have a conversation over coffee about who's going to win, I'm all for it. Let's do that a bit later on. But here's what I need need to tell you about the WWE. It's not fake. It's not. It's not fake. I promise you. It's not fake. The injuries are real. And when you see the blood, sometimes that's real. Sometimes it's a blood capsule. But sometimes it's real. And sometimes the pain that they go through is real. Here's a better word. It's not fake. It's predetermined. Predetermined. You know what's going to happen beforehand. As the competitors go out to professionally wrestle on that, in that ring at that time, you know who's going to win and lose, or at least the producers do, before the match happens. There's a big difference between fake and predetermined. They're realists. They're realists. <laughs> and I'm optimistic about how good next weekend's going to be too. Today, it's a wrestling ring, or perhaps a wrestling match, that dominates the picture of these few chapters. And either side of this wrestling ring, uh, we have the mania of life. And so if you like a a structure to a sermon, we've got mania, wrestling, and then mania again. And the spoiler of the wrestling match here is clear. The result of the wrestling match between Jacob and God, well, it is predetermined as well. As a spoiler alert, God will win and provide the blessing to his person Jacob but before we get there let's deal with mania number one before the match chapter 32 verses 1 to 21 last week we picked uh, left Jacob uh, just leaving the land of Haran he was sent there by his mother some two decades beforehand because Jacob had stolen the blessing and the birthright that belonged to his brother Esau Esau wanted to kill Jacob And so his mother sent him away, go to your uncle's place, 500 miles away in Haran, and stay there. And so he did for some two decades or more. And then at the end of chapter 31, uh, we're told that God sent Jacob back to his home. Now just imagine what that must feel like. God said, go home. Not only that, Laban, his uncle, had pretty much had enough of him and was getting rid of him out of town as well. And so he was heading back to the home where all the damage had taken place some two decades before. And he was going to head home to his brother Esau. Remember Esau? The hairy, outdoorsy, boating, camping, fishing guy? He's been there for 20 years, sharpening his hatchet, ready to get back at Jacob. Or so Jacob thinks. And so Jacob's a little terrified of what might happen. So he sends a, a, a forward message to Esau. He says, I'm coming home. Sends a party ahead of him. And as the message goes out, there's a message that comes back. Look at chapter 32 and verse 6. Chapter 32 and verse 6. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you 
and there are 400 men with him. Uh-oh, this is not good. 400 men, it's the size of a normal militia in its day, apparently. And here he comes to see Jacob. This is not going very well. And the response of Jacob, verse 7, Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him, the flocks and the herds and the camels, into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes and attacks one camp, then the camp that is left will escape. He's terrified. So you would be. This guy who loves to kill animals out in the field and cook them up for his dad is now getting ready, so it seems, to cook up Jacob as well. And so Jacob begins, as he does, to manipulate the situation and to start to sort of suck up to his brother. He sends another message where he calls him master and he sends a humongous gift in the direction of Esau. And yet amidst this sucking up to his brother, amidst this manipulation of the situation, there's still something, well, righteous about Jacob. Look at verse 9. He prays. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and kindred that I may do you good. I'm not worthy of the least of the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you've shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan and now I've become two whole camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and I will make your offspring as the sand of the sea which cannot be numbered for multitude. Jacob is in a lot of ways like us, isn't he? A mixture of fear and then manipulating the situation and faith showing itself in prayer to God. How often do we do the same thing? How often are we a mixture of these two realities, fear and faith next to each other? Well, this is the mania of life, isn't it? The mania of life that directs us away from God in a mixed sort of way as people that aren't altogether consistent in our life. Well, that was before the match. Now we come to the wrestling itself, wrestling with God, the part that Pete read for us, verse 22 to 32. Having divided everything into two camps, he sends some that way and some that way, and he finds himself alone sleeping on one side of the river on that evening or at least that's what he thought because there's not a lot of sleep going on in these verses instead Jacob is left all night wrestling with God now I don't know what you thought as Pete read that passage but as I've been studying that passage this week and in the weeks beforehand I felt it an elusive passage hard to work out exactly what's going on here it's, it's a wrestling match and it's literally in the dark and we appear to be in the dark as well. And perhaps the writer has skillfully done that for us so that we might feel what Jacob is feeling. What's going on here? Because he himself is not sure. As he wrestles in the dark with a figure he does not know, we ourselves are unsure of what's going on. And there's not too many other passages of the Bible that shine a light on this one. That's our normal practice, isn't it, as Bible-believing Christians, if one part of the Bible doesn't make itself clear to us, we find another part of the Bible to shine a light on that one to make sense of it. That's how we interpret the Bible. But here there are not too many other passages that shine a light on this section. Indeed, in God's providence, one of the ones that does shine a light 
was in Hosea chapter 12. We read in our Bible study groups this week. And we found that this wrestling with God in Hosea chapter 12 is said to be a positive characteristic of Jacob. It's part of what it means to return to God. And positive so it is. See, the big question in this wrestling match between God and Jacob is who will submit? I don't know if you know, but when uh, some people hear wrestling, they think of the, uh, uh, the big flamboyant characters of the WWE. But of course, that's not the only type of wrestling, is it? It's the only important type of wrestling, but it's not the only type of wrestling. There are other amateur wrestling uh, uh, academies that happen. And of course, the Greco-Roman wrestling in the Olympics and so on. And one of the goals there is to so contort your opponent into whatever position you can so that they might tap out and lose the match. Submit to you as you put their body into a position that is so painful they cannot help but tap out. And so it is here. Who will submit? Who will tap out? The match goes all night. Jacob is a strong fighter. But at sunrise, Jacob has his hip wrenched. And so finally submits. He's fought hard. He has fought strongly. He has prevailed all night, but he cannot win the battle. Now, what's exactly going on here? Well, it's hard to tell, but we know from the outcome. We know from the outcome of this wrestling match what the the point of the wrestle with God was. You see, Jacob has spent most of his life up to this point gaining from God. He gained the promises of God. He's gained the blessings of God. He has gained the prominence in the bloodline of God's people. And yet, for so many different reasons, he's failed to yield or trust God on the run through. And in the end, in this wrestling match, he is given a weakness by God that causes him finally to yield to God, to submit to him. And only then can good come about. See, it's from the outcome of this wrestling match that we see what the point of it is. Once Jacob submits, he is able then to see the face of God and calls the place Peniel, meaning uh, the the face of God. Secondly, we're told that he gets a blessing from God as a result of submitting to him. And thirdly, he is changed forever. This passage reminds us that Jacob, whose name once meant heel grabber or deceiver is now called Israel he who fights with God or he who uh, rumbles with God the wrestling match the real event that really took place to the real man Jacob in the Middle East some many thousands of years ago depicts to us how we must submit to God it was Jacob's self-righteousness self-service deceptive nature that he was unwilling to lay down and God backed him into a corner and wrestled with him until he would finally submit where he could see God's face be blessed and changed by God and sometimes we are like Jacob sometimes God in our lives will back us into a deep and dark corner in our lives in order that we might wrestle with him Sometimes when we're in the middle of that wrestle with God, we even question whether we like or love God anymore. But sometimes the wrestle is the benefit that God wants for us. He wants to push us into the wrestle so that we might hand over our lives to God, submit our lives to God, yield our lives 
over to him. And at times, in our own strength and struggle, as we face these times of hardship, we will often not put aside our, our self-righteous, self-serving, self, uh, uh, self-sufficient ways. And so God will deliver to us a weakness in order that we might submit to him. But as Hosea chapter 12 says, this is an event of turning back to God in the case of Jacob. And when we do return to God and when we do submit to him, we will be able to see his face. Another way of saying we'll be able to understand God. We'll be ready to be blessed by him and changed. And this is not something that we alone are called to do. You remember Jesus himself did this, didn't he? As we get closer to Easter, we remember that Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. As his death was approaching, he engaged with God in a similar way. Remember, he got down on his knees to pray. And blood came from, uh, from him. And he said, please, Lord, if it's your will, take this cup from me. And he wrestled with God at that moment. And the big question at that moment is, who would win the wrestle? Who would submit to whom? Would Jesus submit to his father and his plan and his will at that time? Or would he go his own way? And we find out at the end of that prayer, Jesus famously says, doesn't he? Not my will, but yours be done. Jesus submitted himself to his father in that garden on that day, giving us, giving us a pattern that we might live by. See, will we live in the mania of life or in the wrestle with God? Sometimes God loves us enough to back us into a corner, to deliver us a weakness, to kick us out of our self-righteousness and self-sufficiency that we might be blessed by him for our good. And this is what we do week by week as we gather, isn't it? We wrestle with God in his word. And sometimes we find ourselves sitting over the top of God's word and we say, I don't like what God's word says. I'm going to decide what God's word says. I will not submit to it. This is the wrestle. The wrestle of our flesh against the word of God. We must always wrestle, but we must always submit. In the wrestle, God is always good. The encounter of the wrestle is always for our good. And sometimes God will deliver a weakness in your life in order that you might submit to him so that you might see his face, understand more of him, be blessed by him and changed by him. Now you'd imagine, wouldn't you, that after such an encounter of physically wrestling with God and coming to submission with now a limp alongside him, you'd think everything would change for Jacob. But it doesn't. The last few chapters, and we'll go through these quickly, show us the second side of the mania after the match. Chapter 33 shows us that Jacob does, in the end, meet Esau, and it's not as bad as he thought. He was a pessimist about what might have happened, but he should have been an optimist. Esau comes along and says, hey, it's great to see you. It's not what he was expecting. What's more, Esau says, who are all these people and what's all this stuff you've got? And Jacob says, God has blessed me along the way. And it's a heartwarming scene. And then we go to chapter 34. 
At the end of chapter 33, Jacob pitched his tent in a land, a piece of land that he bought in Shechem, a place that God told him not to go to. And in Shechem, everything goes bad. You might remember last week, the, uh, the daughter, the one daughter that was mentioned in the passage that was born to Jacob was by his unloved wife, Leah. And this daughter's name was Dinah. Look at what happens to her in chapter 34, verse 1. Chapter 34, verse 1. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her, lay with her, and humiliated her. This is not a good scenario, not a good scene, not a good picture at all. It's a picture of rape. A horrid, horrific, criminal activity of rape. And as we read on in this chapter, Jacob, when he finds out about it, seems strangely unconcerned about the whole event. Also, weirdly in this passage, the rapist then seems to get a conscience about himself somehow and tries to make good by saying that he should marry now uh, this woman, Dinah, even though he has committed this crime against her. And so Jacob's sons hatch a plan. They say, okay, you can marry our sister Dinah, but what you must do is make sure that all the males in your land must get circumcised first. And then they carry out their plan. Look at chapter 34, verse 25. It's quite descriptive and weird, but anyway, I I think it makes the point. Verse 25. On the third day when they were sore... Two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds and their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field all their wealth, all their little ones, all their wives, all that was in their houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? It's a horrid chapter, really. A horrid mix of good and evil, of right and wrong. It's a hard mixture to sort of get our heads around. Because the rapist does a horrible, terrible, disgusting thing. And yet he's not a completely flat character like we see in some of the movies around the place where there's a clear bad guy and a clear good guy. He tries to make restitution, but it's still horrible. The brothers, they're right and wrong at the same time, aren't they? They try to get revenge for their sister being raped, but then they take out not just the family, but the whole city as well. That violence can't be good. And then there's Jacob. He's a little bit aloof that the daughter of his unloved wife gets raped and he doesn't seem to do much about it. And In fact, all he seems to care about is his reputation and making sure that he's safe. He doesn't really seem to care about his daughter. And this chapter just goes to show off the humanity that we all share. Now, we're not all violent rapists, that's true. But we are all mixed people. We are all mixed people. 
The Bible doesn't give us a picture of humanity as flat, one-dimensional characters. It gives us a mixture of what we are all like, good and evil, in the same package. There's not too many movies that show this clearly, are there? But recently, the Avengers series of movies came out, and there's that big, uh, that big uh, end boss, Thanos, that's right at the very, very end. Uh, and I'll give you the spoiler because the movies have been out long enough, but he wants to destroy part of the world, but at the same time make the world a better place. And you get to the end of the movies and you think, well, he's not just a bad guy. You know the bad guys in the movies, you just want to see them gone and that's it. But there's something semi-redeeming about him. I mean, he is trying to make the world a better place, but he's doing it in a pretty terrible way by trying to wipe out all these people. In that movie, you see one of these bad guys that has a little bit of good and a little bit of bad in him, a bit more like us along the way. Well, God shows us in his word what we're really like. He shows us a bit of a mixture of humanity and he puts a mirror up to our face and says, this is what you look like. Well, amidst this hardship, chapter 35 very quickly tells us that Jacob ends up going home. And as he does, God still restates his promises to his, uh, his man, Jacob. And his wife that he loved, Rachel, she does have another child. Verse 18 tells us that she has another child called Benjamin, the 12th of the, of the children to Jacob, but she dies in childbirth. And at the end of the chapter, Esau and Jacob are around the bedside of their father Isaac as he breathes his last breath. And you think this might be a happy picture like we saw at the very beginning of the chapter, but it's not. Verse 22 of chapter 35 tells us that while Israel, that's Jacob, lived in the land, Reuben, the eldest child, went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. This is not just a sexual act. This is the first son the son of Leah, asserting his leadership over the tribe of people and saying, I will be the leader here. And so at the end of Jacob's life, there's a messy mixture of good and bad, a messy mixture of up and down, a messy mixture of mania in amidst the wrestling with God. So what does this episode show us as we finish this morning? Well, it shows us God is a God of patient transformation. Through the mania of life, God wants to take us to that place of wrestling. God encourages us to go to that place of wrestling. That's what we do when we open God's word. We wrestle with him there. We wrestle between what he tells us to do and what we really want to do. And he calls on us every time to submit. And the problem is that you are and I am stubbornly mixed up. Stubbornly self-reliant, stubbornly self-centred. We are realistic about humanity. But we are optimistic about God. Because God is patient with his people. How frustrating must it be for God to choose his people who continually go off in different directions, away from where they should go. How frustrating it must be for God to wish for transformation in his people when his people are so slow to engage with him and take on the wrestle that they might be changed. 
Imagine how hard that must be not to reject his people, but to take them and make them his. Imagine seeing the mania and seeing so few wrestle with God. And the message of these, three, uh, these four chapters is this. Resist the mania of life where we do life our own way and wrestle with God. Because here's the good news. The wrestle with God is not fake. It's predetermined. He always wins. Did you notice the wrestling match that Jacob had with God? Yes, it went all night. But in the end, it was just one touch that knocked the hip out and brought weakness. God always wins. The outcome is predetermined. We must come to the wrestle and know that he will always win and it will always be for our good. God will always be ready to show his face to us, reveal his character to us, to bless us and to change us for our good and for his glory. So resist the mania and get into the wrestle with God and submit to him for our own good. Well, you might like to ask a question just now. There's lots of things in that passage that you might like to ask about. I'm going to stop for about a minute or two. And uh, the hashtag is on the screen if you want to use that uh, to ask a question at slido.com. I'll have a look at a few and come back and answer them in just a minute. Let me, um, I'm just looking for a passage that I now can't find, but anyway, that's okay. A couple of questions that have come in. Um, thank you for asking them. Uh, who was the man with Jacob, God, an angel, Jesus, and what difference would it make? Uh, it was God, um, because that's what Jacob says. I've seen God face to face. So um, Now, what was that like? Well, that's the, the thing about the passage, isn't it? It's super elusive. It's hard for us to know exactly what it is, but we do know from what's said there that it was uh, wrestling, wrestling with God. Uh, does that mean it was Jesus? They talk about this as a, a Christophany, an appearance of Christ. Maybe that's true. Um, maybe it's not true. This, the passage just doesn't, simply doesn't tell us, but, it, but definitely God um, 
what difference does it make? Well, it, it has to be God just because the passage tells us that. So we have to believe what the Bible says at that point uh, in that way. Uh, how would you put mania, in other words, sin? Sin and the life of self-sufficiency against God um, is how I would describe that. Um, and we must resist that in every way, I think. Uh, and the last one that's here, you mentioned that sometimes God might give us a weakness that we would submit to him. Can you clarify what you mean? Yeah, well, uh, there's lots of things in the New Testament that speak about this. Um, that hardship, trial, difficulty, uh, in any way, shape or form, can bring us uh, into a place where we need to submit to God and trust Him. Uh, and so um, you see this in various different places, but James 1, count it all joy, uh, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Uh, and so... Um, there's a sense in which the trials and difficulties produce that good fruit in us. That's the change that's happening in Jacob's life when he, when he changes from Jacob to Israel. Uh, it's the change that God brings about in life. You see it again in, in 1 Peter chapter 1. Um, in this you rejoice, though for now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, uh, so that the te tested genuineness of your faith uh, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And of course, the Apostle Paul talks about that too, doesn't he? Uh, that he got a thorn in the side, whatever that was, we don't know what that was, whether it was a physical ailment, a mental ailment, some sort, it was some sort of ailment, uh, and uh, he was given a thorn in the flesh in order that he would not get too conceited. It's that idea of getting ahead of yourself, getting proud and, and, and arrogant, which is exactly what Jacob did. He was full of himself. Look at all the things that I can do. I'm self-sufficient. I'm getting on on my own steam. I'm a deceptive, cunning piece of work that does all my stuff around the edges. And God says, no, you need to wrestle with me and submit. And Paul does the same thing. He says, I've got the thorn in the flesh, whatever that was, uh, in order that I might submit to God, um, which is a, a helpful piece for us as well. I think uh, the thorn in the flesh that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians is dis, uh, deliberately uh, vague uh, in order that it might fit uh, the application for any of us. So I think that's actually a helpful uh, thing that happens there uh, for us as well. So I think those weaknesses are things that God puts in our place to helpfully back us into a corner so that we might actually submit to him. You see that in life, don't you? Uh, when Christian brothers and sisters find themselves in uh, periods of hardship and difficulty, uh, that's often the time when they come and rely on God the most. And that's, that's the point. We submit to him at that moment. Uh, and so we should all the time. So let me pray that we'll do that. Heavenly Father, please help us to regularly wrestle with you and submit to you. We thank you for the example of, of Jacob here, that in all of the mixedness of his humanity, uh, that he did submit to you at this moment. And we pray, please, that you would help us uh, to submit to you regularly in the power of the Spirit, that you would give us uh, your strength to submit to you, because we know that on the other side, uh, that is where the good change comes about that you promised to us. Uh, please help us not to be stubborn in our own strength, uh, but to uh, remember uh, that submitting to you is where uh, uh, real life begins with the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, thank you for this passage and its example to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to sing a song that's going to be uh, directly connected to what we've just mentioned. Uh, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane said, your will be done. And we're going to stand and sing the same thing. So please stand. <laughs>